you are listening to episode 38 of season 13 of the Good New World Order for day number 259 of 2019. Hey everyone, this is Klaatu, and in this episode we're going to continue uh, what we've been doing, which is to review commands from the util Linux package, because as you know by now, we are going over every single application installed by default on a Slackware Linux image, and possibly in some cases, on your Linux box as well, because certainly right now we're going through util Linux, and that is typically distributed with everything. util Linux is from the kernel maintainers, and it's kind of one of those utilitarian util Linux uh, packages that everyone gets, even if you don't necessarily sort of consciously use those commands very often, or at all sometimes, as as is arguably the case today. So the the command imcookie is next in our list of util Linux. It's user bin imcookie. And imcookie, uh, according to the man page, let me do man imcookie, get exactly the, the description here. It says it generates magic cookies for X auth. It specifically generates a 128-bit random hexadecimal number for use with the X authority system. Now, honestly, to me, it looks like mcookie is sort of just a, a dressed-up version of md5sum. I mean, that's seriously what... In fact, that's probably what I'll probably realistically use it for if I need a random value for a, a password or something like that. Just running mcookie is a quick and easy way to sort of just get that first part of the output of md5sum. And in fact, that's what you could do. If you just type in mcookie, you'll see it in action and it, it dumps out a, uh, a an md5-sum-length hash of, of random letters and numbers, of course they're all actually numbers, from urandom, from, from slash dev slash urandom. If you want to add a little bit of randomness to that, you can, you can use the dash dash file, or, or dash f if you are lazy, and and it uses whatever file you pass off to it as a little bit of extra extra randomness. Um, it, there's not, not really great detail in the man page about how it uses that file, like what it's doing. I, I don't know if it's counting characters and using that number as a starting value. I don't know if it's calculating that md5sum and then grabbing another md5sum from urandom and then combining the two or, or, or what. It doesn't really say. But let's just try it. Um, so well, here's a uh, here's a random file in my home directory called package source .note. No idea what that is. It's probably something ages ago. Imcookie-f that file return and I get 12de and then a lot of numbers and then 171f. So I'll run it again and I get a different a3cf and then a899. So obviously a different number. So even though you're using, you know, it's not you're not just using the file that you're giving it. It is obviously adding something to the results. And then if I run it yet again, without any variety, any any new in any file, um, I get something completely different. So I'm, I'm getting a, a unique value each time, and that's obviously what you that's what you want when you're generating random cookies for a, a um, an authorization system. I could go into XAuth at this point because that's really what we would want to, to talk about to cover what what's actually happening here. 
but I'm not going to. Um, I will say that if you go into the in cookie man page, and it says typical usage, x auth space add, and this is in the in cookie man page mind. So x auth space add space colon zero space dot space the results of im cookie. So backtick im cookie backtick. If you run that, um, bad things could happen. So I advise you not to necessarily run that if you're doing important work on your system. It, it, it may cause you to lose author authorization to run applications on your own machine. So you would not want to do that. There are times when you would do that, but you wouldn't. I don't know. I don't know what the occasion would be to run that specific command because you're you're basically saying take take my authorization to use my own display and add a random cookie to it. Um, I don't know how you are then supposed to be authorized to use that to, to use your own to use your own computer at that point. So all of this stuff is stored in .x authority. That's if you want to look at it, you can do a cat tilde slash dot capital X and then the word authority, and you'll you'll get a bunch of a bunch of gibberish that your terminal doesn't know how to display to you probably, and that that shows you sort of the the magic cookie activity for your current session. You can do the same thing. You can get that those same results with the x auth command x auth return it says using authority file home um clatu uh, dot x authority and then you can type in and then you're at a, a prompt an x auth prompt which i don't really want to be at but i'm going to i'll keep going with this since i'm talking about it so i'll, I'll type in list list return and it lists all of the different cookies that are i guess active on your machine right now MIT magic cookie dash one and they'll show you the hash of, of that magic cookie and it'll type in exit to get out of that prompt and that's as far down the x auth uh, path we will go right now because as I say we're not really on that right now so it's kind of a we're cheating by by not limiting our scope to just in cookie but I just wanted to talk a little bit about that because in cookie alone doesn't really seem to make a whole lot of sense. And I guess if we're being really strict about it, imcookie is a command to get a random string from dev urandom. Type in imcookie, you get a string. Type imcookie dash dash file and then a path to some, some file of your choice, and now you get a different random string with the additional entropy of having been influenced by some file of, of of your choice. It says, use this file as an additional source of randomness. When file is dash, characters are read from standard input. So there you go. Um, that's it. Oh, we, we didn't run it verbosely. That could be interesting. M cookie dash V or dash dash verbose. And it tells me that I got it got 128 bytes from dev u random. So let's do the same thing now with dash dash file, and we'll use my bash rc file as the as the the file for randomness. 
and it says it got 536 bytes from bash rc and it got five it got 128 bytes from dev random that's kind of interesting actually that's that's useful to know so that is that that, that i guess that is that's how that's being used after all now we know okay so that is um that's m cookie let's move on to the next one which is m e s g now you might think that m e s g has something to do with d message d m e s g it does not it's got, there's no relation message is actually a toggle command so man message uh, display or do not display messages from other users the message utility is invoked by a user to control write access others have to the terminal device associated with standard error, er, error output. If write access is allowed, then programs such as talk and write may display messages on the terminal. Traditionally, write access is allowed by default. However, all as users become more conscious of various security risks, there's a trend to remove write access by default, at least for the primary login shell. Uh, to make sure that your TTYs are set the way you want them to be set, message should be executed in your login scripts. There are two arguments for for message. There's the in to disallow and the y to allow. So if we do mesg uh, return, it says is in. So if I do mesg y, it gives me no feedback whatsoever, so I'll do MESG again, and it says is Y. So now it is active. So if someone else was on my network in a terminal and wanted to talk to me, then they could use the talk command or the write command or the wall command and send me a message. This is something that that is it, it smacks of old school Unix where you're at a company and you're all really in the same system you are all logged into the same system but your the computer on your desk it has logged into an x server and and is connected but but is connected to file systems not local to your computer it's very fancy stuff it's very cool i got to experience it at a movie studio that i was working at here in new zealand it was a lot of fun and uh, the talk and the write and the wall commands were enabled, and you could get messages from other people from uh, right there in your terminal. It was pretty neat. It was it was a a real luxury to be a part of that system, and um, I will certainly never forget it. It was just absolutely pure Unix stuff, and it was just a blast to be a part of. So, um, MESG, you can you know sort of it's basically setting yourself away or not away on a modern chat uh, program like, um, I don't know, whatever people use for modern chat. AIM? Not really, but Signal? Something like that. Um, so yeah, that's that's MESG, and that's really everything about MESG that I have to say, because that's really all there is to it. It's a pretty simple on or off switch. Well, I'd kind of planned to only cover the M's this episode, but that was a lot quicker than I realized. So let's Let's dip into the n section and take a look at the command name i. Name i is kind of cool. It resolves path names sort of for you. You'll you'll see. So name i follow a path name until a terminal point is found. It's it's not that's not the best way to express what is happening here, but that's fine. Um, so it it sort of deconstructs a path for you. 
so let's go to a terminal here and name i, and I'll just do a tilde slash dot bash rc. I know that that file exists, and I know where it is, so we'll hit return. And it spits out this kind of line item deconstruction of the path that you have provided for it. And the path, and this is a really good one to look at because at least on my system I have it pretty well. There's a lot going on here. So F, the that's I believe it's just saying the the file that I've passed it is yeah the F is the the path name currently being resolved, and it tells me that the 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 file name that I've provided is slash home slash clatu slash dot bash rc. Under that is a D for directory, and it's slash, and then under that is D for directory home, and then D clatu, and then an L. What does L stand for? Well, as you might, might as you can probably imagine, it's symbolic link. Both the link and its contents will be output. Okay, so let's see if that's true. So it tells me L dot bash rc, and that points to slash home slash clatu slash dot profile. So where does profile exist? Well, under the L is a D slash D home D clatu, and then finally uh, a dash, meaning that this is a regular file in the notation of name I dot profile. So that's the full resolution of that name. It tells me the the path that I actually gave it. It tells me where that lives, it tells me what kind of file it is, and then it tells me what it actually resolves to. Really, really potentially useful command, I think, as you can probably imagine. Now, if I give it a fake file, so name i tilde slash foo, which I happen to know right now does not exist, tells me all that information, it gives me the directory, the directory, the directory, and then it tells me, uh, and then it gives me a, a foo dash no such file or directory. So it, it doesn't give you an error or anything like that. It, it, it follows through as, as long as it can, and when it realizes, well, there's actually no, there's actually no, there, there's no resolution here, it tells you that. It tells you exactly that it, it doesn't know um, how to resolve that thing, which is, which is useful sometimes. Now, I, I understand that a lot of people you know, in some ways, um, it kind of, it's useful to not return essentially true if, if something is essentially, is, is basically an error. And I can, I can kind of see, I can see arguments for, for both ways. And I would love for there to be a switch here saying to error out if there is no file that I provide to be resolved. But there's there's no allowance for that, so that's kind of kind of an interesting feature of of this program, and I think it would probably guide you in how you are going to to utilize it. I would I would imagine like possibly you wouldn't use it at all um, if if you knew that it was going to to lie to you and tell you that you know give you a list of all of all these things until it finally says no such file. So anyway. There are options here. Name i dash dash long gives you the long list of of the files and directories. So it gives you the um, mo the file modes, the um, the file ownership, and so on. Dash m it gives you just the the file mode. So rwx rwx rx or whatever it is. 
dash dash no sim links or just dash in don't follow the sim links so in that profile instance let's get back up to that really quick and add an in to that no it was the bash rc sorry uh there it is it it just points at the very bottom it says oh it's an l it's a dot bash rc and it goes to profile but it doesn't actually show you it doesn't then delineate where profile is dash o or dash dash owners show owner and group of each file so it's like the long thing but 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 without the file mode it just has the file owners uh, dash v vertically align the modes and owners so this um i think that was a dash v is that a dash v it seems really odd yeah dash v uh, it just makes sure that when you're using for instance your dash l everything's lined up there's no nothing's staggered in, in a weird way i don't really see the difference to be honest because i at least in my terminal the output of dash l and dash o and everything were were already lined up but maybe um maybe i just don't have enough enough users happening or enough variety in the file ownership in that particular instance um, dash m show or dash x sorry dash x or dash dash mount points show mount point directories with a capital d rather than a lowercase d and i think that's everything those are all the all the um the options the original aim i program was written by roger from uh, tech.com and the program was rewritten by carol zach from red hat bugs are to be discovered so if you're looking to find bugs it sounds like name i is ripe for the picking that's it that's that's what it does what you're going to do with it is up to you it's an interesting little command easy to parse uh, I, I can see really how it would be really really useful actually um, i know that there you know there there's probably some overlap there with things like dir name and base name and and things that that are designed to chop up paths but i kind of feel like there there is a little bit of there's something there to to the ability to get a predictable list of the different steps in a path i mean it seems weird to just to to use it on a on your own in your own terminal to a file that you obviously already know the path of but sometimes you don't have that whether it's because you're writing a, a script that is that, that 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 is going to receive a a path that you cannot predict you know the user may be may be providing a path to a file you don't know what that path is and you want to be able to establish some some things about the file so you're able to look you know if the second line reads uh, home then you know that it's in a home it's in the home directory and maybe that means something to you if if the second line is um shared storage or you know nfs or, or whatever then you know that it's somewhere else and maybe that means something to you and certainly once again just using the the movie studio that i worked at as a an example you very often didn't know the true path of a of a thing because maybe it was on you know it looked like it was at slash name of the movie but it was actually slash nfs slash um, shots slash name of movie slash scene slash 001 i don't know whatever it might be 
um, sometimes you didn't know where the actual thing was because a lot of scripts would abstract that away from you. So that's, that's a useful command, that's what I'm trying to say. Now the next one in the list, nsenter, is uh, a little bit more complex than name i or mcookie or message, so I'm not going to start on that one this episode. It is a big, big topic, and I don't know how even to begin to tackle it since it really requires that we understand namespaces. So they'll, they'll, I'll need to do a little bit of an introduction to the concept of namespaces, and after that I can talk about nsinter and maybe possibly execute a command with nsinter. But it, it is a big topic, and we will save it for next time, because I think in the next episode we'll just talk about namespaces, how to determine a namespace, and then nsinter, how to run a program with a namespace of another process. So that's where we'll leave it off right now not the episode, just this, this segment of the episode. The next segment of the episode is everyone's favorite segment of any episode. It is, of course, the coffee break. Ideally, you have a cup of coffee. I, um, once again, I'm not drinking Carl's special coffee that he bought for me. I am still drinking whatever I got from the bin store because I'm about to move yet again into a house in about seven days. So I decided to hold off on opening the next bag of delicious C4 coffee for the house rather than to power through it here at the flat. The house is only about a block away from the flat, so it's an easy move. It won't disrupt anything. Just saying I don't want it to interrupt the enjoyment of my coffee. That's that's the important note. That's the important takeaway here. What I want to talk about right now is uh, I want to go back to the topic that I was talking about in the previous episode, 1337, uh, and kind of talk about how people get started down the path of utilizing open source in real life. I think this is a, an endlessly fascinating conversation because it happens in so many different ways, and I'd be I'd be fascinated to hear about um, the way that you handled this in your own life, dear listener. Because, like I say, I think it's an endlessly fascinating conversation. I've already said in the previous episode how I sort of got started, how I, I took my existing computer took a look at all the applications that I was using on it and swapped them out, just literally swapped them out, like in some, in many cases, deleted what was there and put an open source equivalent in its place. And that got me 90% of the way there. And then the the next 10% was when I installed Linux and I found that that 10% was actually another 100% to go. Um, but th that was a, an effective way and I think it's a pretty common way. I think that's... Um, that's a that's one of those arguments or uh, one of those yeah arguments I guess one of the the ideas behind cross-platform open source applications right you you get people ramped up on Firefox and on LibreOffice and on I don't know whatever else GIMP uh, and 
and then you 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 swap out their OS, and they're none the wiser, right? I mean, I, I'm saying that sort of tongue in cheek because obviously you that doesn't actually work. You don't just swap someone's OS out. You don't pull the rug out from under them, and suddenly they're running Linux. Um, and and you know you could literally try that, and I, I think I've sort of tried that before. And what happens is that they they go to the internet and look for an application that they want to run, and there's no downloadable.exe or .dmg, and and they think, oh my gosh, what? How do I install a thing on this operating system? And then it becomes this whole hairy mess of, well, here's the package manager, and here's the graphical one that only works half of the time, and then that one, that application that you were looking for isn't included in the package manager, so we're going to have to download it separately, and we'll install it to slash opt, and so on. So you can't do that. But that is an idea. That is a that is a tactic that I think many people have really believed to be the the correct one, the the one that we're that we're working towards is just to make sure that all of those great open source applications are cross-platform, and then people can start using the the open source applications, and then basically they're open source users, right? That they're they're running all open on a closed stack, but other than that, they're open source, and that's a valid thing. I mean, there are people out there who are doing exactly that. That's the that's the, their expression of I'm, I use open source is that they run open source on a closed stack. And the closed stack is the toaster, right? It's it's the thing that you purchase off the shelf, and it just runs, and that's all that you really care about. It is the appliance upon which you run your actual, like, quote-unquote operating system. If we're saying, oh, an operating system is the collection of applications that you run, which no one says, but let's say that anyway, uh, then, then that's it. They're on an open-source, quote-unquote, operating system, because all of their applications or at least all the ones that they care about, are open source. Now, the, I think the, the problem that we run into there is that not all platforms are super friendly to open source, uh, an open source, uh, quote-unquote, operating collection, a user space application set. Um, they, they, they provide libraries or op, you know, operability layers um, like Xcorts or WSL, and then they, they neglect to actually keep those things in running order. And so... While in principle it should work, uh, it just doesn't quite work the way that it it doesn't it never quite feels right, or it just crashes or whatever. So there's that problem, and that again, as I said in the previous episode, uh, isn't really an open source problem. It's an open source problem, but it but the onus I guess is technically on the on the maintainer of the closed stack upon which it's running. But there's the, there's no guarantee there that they're going to keep the open source stuff running like that's not that's not part of the license that's not part of the the eula that you agree with agree to when you turn on your computer for the first time after you've purchased it so that's a problem so anyway there are other ways and and i want to talk about that and and some of those like certainly one of those ways would be the the classic virtual machine and i I kind of cringe when I think about virtual machines being sort of the introduction to Linux because I think, well, that's it's not the optimal way to to experience Linux. Number one, and it is because it, basically because anything in a in a virtual machine is not optimal, right? Like literally, it's not optimized, and it's also just not it's just suboptimal. You, you just you know that you're in a virtual machine, and it always it, it feels a little bit different because maybe there's just a little tiny bit of lag or or you just you just know you know that you're in a window 
mimicking a computer, and it just doesn't feel the same. It's silly, but I think it, that it, it does exist. I think it is a thing. Um, and I, I think in in the past, if I'd been transitioning over to Linux now, uh, so the past is now, if I was doing it now, I, I could see myself saying, okay, well, I will use a virtual machine, but I, I'm going to set up the computer such that, and I would have hacked it together if I had to, such that after I powered on the computer, the virtual machine launched. And that was, I mean, that was kind of my methodology at one point, was to to uh, destroy the, the desktop and to just have a script that ran upon login to launch uh, X, X11 and launch a desktop and all these other things that I'd compiled on the Darwin kernel. Um, and and I do mean compiled, like I did not use a package manager at the time. I was I didn't know about those yet. I was literally compiling applications. Um, no, that's not true. I think I did. I think I did know about uh, Think, the Think project. I might have been using some stuff from there, but it was a lot of stuff was hand compiled uh, from or manually compiled. I didn't go in and like hack on uh, assembly myself, but or, or pro, uh, machine language. Um, but anyway, so th that's a thing, right? You could and you could do that, and and then then it would kind of there would be a feeling that, well, this is my computer. And, and and I think that's where the whole idea of, well, you have to be running an open stack starts to get wobbly because at some point, the, the, the thing that it require, that, that you require to drive your machine is beyond your control. I mean, it isn't, but at, it, it also is. Um, and I guess it really is because, I mean, there are still debates today about blobs in firmware and so on and, and and what kind of code is on that chip that's on your motherboard is that open or closed and you know I mean, they're the, the the debates just go on and on so if you're just launching a virtual machine and, and that's your computer to you then who cares what's running underneath it ultimately it's like it's a good it's a valid question it's a very valid sort of like well should we care so much about the stack at that point and again, I think we do need to care about the stack because once again, the the operability upon that stack is 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 not within our control. But if that stack were a lot lot more minimal, and it's just like, well, you are technically an operating system because you're driving the hardware of my computer, but I'm not interfacing with you in any way except to launch this virtual window. I think that I mean honestly, I, I feel like that would be something there would be something there i don't know if it would be worth anything but it would be something and i think that's a uh, it's the the virtual machine thing i mean i have to admit i i ran a couple of things in virtual machines really really early on um at work mostly because i didn't have control over the computer itself and i knew i couldn't couldn't install linux uh, on the computer because that would have that would have hindered my ability to to do the job that i that i had at that time so i i had virtual machines that would run Linux. And so I would do things in the virtual machine. I would explore Linux in a virtual machine at work. And that it was it was a way. It, it felt very much, and maybe that was partly because of this, that's how I used it, but it did feel very much like a, a little bit of a taster, a little bit of a, of a, a dip into the pool rather than full immersion. But that's, it's a valid thing that obviously is a way for people to get used to the idea of oh this is just an operating system this isn't so strange after all this isn't 
at all scary. This is a desktop. I know how to use this. I can figure this out. So that's one good way. Run it in a virtual machine. Fire up the virtual machine. Run Linux in there. Start trying to do stuff in that virtual machine. Go full screen for a day and try to get some stuff done. Try to get the stuff back out of the virtual machine. Depending on the, uh, the host, that may or may not be very easy or difficult, but you could, you know, there are cloud storage methods and so on. So virtual machine is a, a valid way. Another way is to, uh, of course, one of my favorite ways, I think, is to run something off of a USB drive. That used to not be a possibility because uh, certain computers, certain hardwares, would block the ability to run an operating system off of a USB key. They just wouldn't, when you... When you pressed whatever special button you had to press whilst uh, booting your computer, it would not show you, it would not give you the option to run the thing off of a USB drive specifically. That was frustrating, but luckily I've not seen that in ages. So if you download a Linux distribution, such as Porteous, which we've talked about on this episode, on this show before, download that, put it onto a USB thumb drive, reboot your computer, snag the startup with whatever key you have to press to get a, a choice and then boot off of that USB key and once again you're using you're using Linux and th and that's I think that's priceless because then you're really using Linux and if you copy the OS into RAM you can even take that USB thumb drive out of your computer so you don't have like this thing sticking out of your computer and you can use the computers normally and it's it's a super smooth and easy and natural feeling experience and I think that's one of the, the, the just the coolest ways to try Linux is to is to utilize that ability for Linux to be installed onto a thumb drive really simple so we've got virtual machine we got USB drive we've got another computer right that's a, a perfectly valid method as well to say well I've got my main laptop that I use every day but there's that one laptop that I've got in the closet or in the on the shelf and it was a perfectly good laptop three years ago, five years ago, but now it's it's too slow, it's too too virus laden, too whatever. Install Linux onto it. Just put Linux on there and see how Linux performs. It'll probably surprise you, um, and you can then experience Linux on that machine natively. Once again, it's in a way it's it's a good method, but it's also a bad method because chances of you picking up that computer instead of your main computer that's kind of 50 50 it kind of depends on who you are i know that me if i rescue a laptop with linux i am then usually driven to use it more often because there's a certain amount of pride that comes with that but i don't think that's necessarily true for everyone a lot of people like the new and the shiny and they just prefer to use that newer computer there's also that drawback of that older computer if it's a laptop there's probably a problem with the battery just because that's usually what kills a laptop ultimately is just the the two-hour battery life that it eventually uh, starts to starts to be plagued with so there are drawbacks to that I think but it's not a bad it's not a bad way to get that native experience on on a computer with Linux now thinking a little bit outside the box here there are some the, the, there are some things that are are distinctly uh, new. Well, actually, I said that, and, and I'm thinking, starting to qualify that, but let's call it distinctly new. One is the Windows subsystem for Linux, WSL, which apparently is WSL2 now. Not really sure what the status of it is. 
There are blog posts on Microsoft about it all the time, so you can kind of follow along if you really need to. Um, but even with WSL or WSL2, the idea is that you can install essentially Linux on, on your Windows box and, and have it running as sort of a sub-process. But it's supposedly a, a, a completely sort of native and equal sub-process to, you know, it's as equal to any other thing that you're running on your Windows box. And that, that, that certainly seems very cool. It's very early in development, so it's probably not the best way yet to experience Linux. But it is a, a, an interesting way to kind of get used to the idea of what Linux might be. And this is, I think, I think this would be for the more, more for the programmer out there, I don't think, or, or the very, very curious newbie uh, who, who's completely fine with really kind of hacking on things. And, and I said that it was a very new thing, but it, it, I mean, if we really look back, we could we could cite Sigwin as something that that's basically you know basically not basically but similar enough, right? It, it's there there are certain parallels there. Uh, Sigwin being, of course, a project that would enable you to run not Linux applications, but applications that are frequently associated with Linux on your Windows box. So a whole POSIX environment uh, called Sigwin, C-Y-G-W-I-N. And so it's it's new, but it's not new. It's completely new because it is actually a Linux kernel, and and that's a lot different than, than Sigwin. But the idea, I think, is kind of the same, and that is to get used to the way that Linux feels on a different platform, and the I think the equivalent to the to that on on Mac would be something like Mac Ports or uh, Brew.sh or Homebrew, as they call themselves, which is just a package manager for Mac. And and once again, it's just kind of like this feeling that okay, this is how we do things on this platform. And to be realistic, that that is often one of the biggest, the, like like the desktop experience of, of Linux is exactly where it needs to be. I don't think there, there's anything wanting in the literal the desktop experience uh, and, and many of the application experiences, especially if you're already using those open source applications on your closed source platform. There, it, It's no different, right? It's the same thing. But just the, the foreignness of, well, here's how applications get installed on Linux. Here's how you activate something on, on Linux that is not active before. That's a very new and different feel to people who, 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 who've never maybe had to mess around even with the Windows registry, much less with the CMD.exe or whatever it is. So getting a feel for that, that, that sort of workflow, and to normalize the idea that well, sometimes it's okay to talk directly to your computer. Sometimes you don't have to go through. 50 different GUI interfaces, 50 might be a little bit much, five different GUI interfaces to to accomplish a task. Normalizing that on other platforms I think is actually quite healthy. I think it's also, you know, if we're if we're being if we're being petty, um, and I'm I'm certainly not beyond that at all, um, then it it's there there is a little bit of an admission of of a victory there, right? I mean, the idea that these other platforms are mimicking Linux in order to to stay relevant 
it's outstanding. I mean, it's, it's beyond, it defies belief, right? You wouldn't ever have thought in a million years that there would be a command for installing applications on a Mac. Like, that just doesn't even calculate. Like, the Macintosh is champion of GUI, right? I mean, that is, that's what everyone says about the Mac is how usable it is and how pretty it is and all these other things. And then to find out that for a good portion of Mac users at a technical conference, Brew is their go-to place for applications is kind of mind-boggling. And the fact that Windows, of all things, Microsoft is shipping a Linux kernel, like literally shipping a Linux kernel with with, with Windows now, is it is beyond mind-boggling it's it's all very very unexpected and it it comes it, it comes in such an unexpected form i think for for these companies to sort of essentially admit defeat which sounds really actually over harsh but let's go with it for now admit defeat by mimicking uh the linux workflow which again when we talk negatively about Linux, that that's that those are usually these are the things that people talk about. These are the exact things people cite on Linux that they do they that they want to get away from, and it is the thing that is being ported to other operating systems. So it either means that everyone's missing the boat, or that everyone has missed the boat. And I think it's probably the latter. I think. I think people complaining about these these interfaces on Linux just didn't get the memo that sometimes it's just better to be explicit and direct than to be pretty and quote-unquote user-friendly, whatever that means. So that's another way. WSL, Mac ports, brew. Normalize it for yourself. Get, get used to this workflow of, of being able to command your computer directly rather than to go through hoops created by another programmer who thought this is probably the way someone wants to configure their computer i'll put the button over here because i imagine that's what everyone wants maybe it's not who knows it's hard to say because that's the only way that you have to configure it so get used to different ways get get used to having control over your own computer and eventually that sort of thing might become so natural that Adopting an operating system that just has that by default doesn't seem like such a crazy idea. And I think in a lot of these a lot of these scenarios, whether it's virtual machine or USB thumb drive or an alternate computer or WSL or brew .sh, all of these scenarios or, or just using a bunch of open source applications until you are using nothing but open source applications, all of these scenarios, are ways of getting comfortable with little aspects of computing that previously were not normal for you. They they felt foreign, they felt uncomfortable because they felt new and different. And when you make them feel comfortable and familiar and and you start to recognize that actually, yeah, this is the preferred method. I'm starting to get tired of going to that one GUI menu and going to that place and doing the thing, or I'm having I'm getting tired of having to update my subscription to that thing or to buy a new copy of that other thing. 
then then suddenly you're ready. You're ready to, to jump ship. You're ready to go over to Linux. So that's it. That's uh, that, Those are my thoughts on the ways that people transition to Linux. And I would be, as I say, very curious to hear from you, dear listener, uh, how you may or may not have have made that change or how you're making that change uh, and, and sort of the strategies that you invented for yourself. Because everyone's unique. Everyone's different. And, and it, I'd be very curious to hear uh, how, how different people manage it. So let me know. Or not. Fine. Either way, I will talk to you. I'll be right here next week. Listening to the GNU World Order Ogcast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Ogcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time.